Hello and welcome to A Place for Truth. A Place for Truth is a regular monthly meeting we hold on Zoom, which brings together Reformed theologian intellectuals for conversations around today's cultural issues in a public online forum. Enjoy today's conversation. You have not come to a desert mountain. You have come to the living God. You have come to the heavenly city, Jerusalem. The crisis of ecclesia, the nature and necessity of Christian worship. Some of the questions we're going to address are, what is Christian worship? What is it not? How does worship relate to the church? Is it in the church, outside of the church? Is there a distinction there? What is the church? What are its primary functions? And can all those things be accomplished online, which many local churches are doing now, or must they be in person? We've asked Dr. Ardell Kennedy, who's a retired professor recently of Northwestern University here in Minnesota, um, Dr. Andrew Sandlin. He is the director of the Center for Cultural Leadership. Both Andrew and Ardell uh, had also, have also been pastors uh, for long periods of time. David Smith uh, is uh, the pastor of Covenant Fellowship Presbyterian Church uh, in, is it North or South Carolina? North Carolina. North Carolina. All right. Very good. Out on the East Coast. And then Bob Dahlberg, who is uh, our uh, token Southern Baptist, uh, also from Minnesota here. Uh, he will be joining us. He thinks he's on vacation with his wife. And so we've given him permission to not join us, but he's somewhere out traveling out West. So if he gets to a truck stop and he can find internet access, he was going to try to join in with us. But um Again, I invited all these guys for a reason. Um, one, they are all, they um, not telling them to ask them to say their ages or anything, but they have all been pastors for a long time, have a lot of experience, and have also fought and contended for the truth, both formatively building up the church, but also uh, polemically having to, to tear down falsehoods and false teaching and contend for the faith. And they've seen it in the real church settings. And so nothing we say here is hypothetical. We've all dealt with it as pastors, as church members, as professors, as writers, um, and as Christians. And so um, I invite these guys to be the main speakers because, um, you, you know, you're going to hear guys that have, that have been, as new issues come up in our culture, probably have already dealt with the issue at some time in the past. And so uh, without further ado, let me pray, and then um, we're going to get started. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. And I thank you, God, for gathering us together. We recognize that we here um, are members of um, the visible church in all of its loca- local manifestations and all of its local places. But God, we thank you for uh, the evidence of providence, the evidence of your grace, that we can agree whatever our backgrounds are, we can agree on your word. We can learn from one another. I pray, Father, that you would use these times to cause us to trust in you, to be confident in your word, to repent. Um, uh, Give us, give us, uh, help us to be salt and light in this increasingly darkened world. And God, I can't help but think that there are probably some here who are dealing with these crises in their own local church. I pray today, God, that you would Give them tools from your word. And God, above all, will you be glorified? Um, All in vain, unless this, all is vain, unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. So God, we ask you, by the power of your spirit, to to give us unity and direction. 
knowing that you are the one to whom we will have to give an account, but also you are the creator and sustainer of our lives. And by your son, Jesus Christ, we are secure in you. We are forgiven in you and we are redeemed and have a purpose in this life and for all eternity. So in your name we pray, amen. Is this right now what we're doing? Is this Christian worship and is this the church? Us gathering here online. No, <laughs> it is not. Um, uh, the church, the worship of the church is gathered publicly. Um, it is not something that can be done online. You can have a sermon online. You can have various aspects or various elements of worship online. You can watch somebody go through them, but that's not what scripture means by the, the worship of God's people. The worship of God's people is a public gathering. Uh, it's, a, it's an assembly, um, a gathered assembly, and it's done by God himself. That's part of what's vital that we understand about uh, the church itself and, and the very nature of the church that then issues forth in its primary function, which is corporate worship. Church is God's idea. It was God's plan, um, and perhaps um, one of the best ways I think to sort of frame these things is to recognize that um, the church is first and foremost an organism. It's a living organism. Um, it's it's the presence and power of God on earth. Um, it is in His most concentrated and clearest form. Um, you, know, you think about what salvation is. It's God giving someone eternal life. And from the beginning, God uh, created created Adam and Eve together, a community. Um, the, the organism, the church, began at the very point of creation of God creating Adam and Eve, his first family, and from them has come the church. Uh, it's vital that we understand that. Well, I, I would say amen to everything that David has said. And I would also make the point that um, we who believe in the incarnate word should of all people be most distressed when the word is not incarnate, that is, when the word is not spoken in, in embodied presence, we ought to be distressed with, uh, with where we are and where we have been for six months with regard to the preaching of the word, the reception of the word. Um, I will say this, and I... Uh, I'm loath to say it, but I, um, I say it because I've experienced it for a long time. At our church, I, we've experienced um, video church for many years, and there is something profoundly lacking in the preaching of the word when, when the congregation is sitting there watching a movie, because that's what we're doing. We're watching a movie of a preacher preaching so that 
as I look in the eyes of the preacher, there's no looking back at me. And preaching is, is a two-way dynamic, and receiving the word is a two-way dynamic. And so David's point that you can hear a sermon preached online or on radio or on television, uh, yes, you can, yes, we can hear that, but it is, it is a fundamentally different experience than sitting and receiving the word preached in the congregation of God's people. And, and as one who has preached and has taught many years, it is, it is an indispensable dimension for sound, solid, effective preaching. Um, there is, God has, God has made us in such a way that our conversations face-to-face -face bring things out from us that conversations and, uh, and speaking via things like what we're doing right here um, do not bring out from us. At try as we might, uh, we cannot replicate electronically by, and, dis and by distance uh, hearing or visual we cannot replicate the dynamic of face-to-face -face conversation, face-to-face -face speaking and preaching and teaching. Uh, if we really believe in the incarnate word, that is in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we ought to be always seeking to be present in the hearing of the word there so that the, the preacher and the, receipt, the the congregation, that they're both embodied. We ought, to be, we ought to be doing that for the preaching of the word and for every other aspect of worship. <clears throat> I'm gonna ask Andrew a question going from that. Uh, Dr. Sandlin, um, my, our church, which some of us here are members of, we are involved now in a federal lawsuit against uh, the state of Minnesota for restricting our worship, not only with mask mandates, but also telling us when and when and when we can't meet. I, of course, since we've done that, have been the recipient of a few choice emails from various concerned people about, uh, and usually they involve something with the idea that the church is not a building. Why are you making this a big deal? It's wherever two or three are gathered, we can do that online. We entitled this tonight, Ecclesia. Where do we see from scripture what Ardell was just saying? Why is it necessary and why do we fight so hard for the physical gathering from the word of God? Well, I think I agree with my all my colleagues said thus far. I think it's important to understand that the church, and I think David was alluding to this, didn't begin in the New Testament with the New Covenant, but with the Old Covenant, and actually even before the institution of the Old Covenant Sinai. But in the New Testament, the church is the ecclesia, and that is the gathered community. Now, I think it's fundamental for, fundamental for people to understand that if you do not have that gathered community, and when the Bible speaks of that, it speaks of a corporeal community, as Ardell was pointing out, 
I mean, such that you could shake someone's hand, hug someone, look at the hair on his or her arms. That's the kind of corporeal meeting that's being talked about. If you don't have that, you don't have the church. I think we need to be bold here. And I think what's happened this last six months has forced people to start addressing these issues that should have been addressed earlier. And people didn't seem to quite understand. The old timers understood this a lot better often than we do when if there was some catastrophe or a a weather situation that forbade attending on Sunday morning, they would say, well, there was no church today. That's fundamentally the right way to understand this. If you don't have the gathered community, you don't have church. Now, by that, I'm not saying that church members shouldn't be faithful to the Lord wherever they are and fulfill their obligations as members of the body. But uh, fundamentally, if you don't have this visible corporeal community, then you don't have church. Now, what I'm really saying here is that most of the churches in this country, including the conservative churches, for the last six months have not been churches. Now, they can be religious ministries, and they can offer um, Zoom meetings, and they can send literature, and so on, but they're not the church. I think Gardell brought up a really important point when he was talking about the Incarnation. So this issue really is not just ecclesiological, it's also Christological. We have a Christology that demands the enfleshment of the Son of God, and you really don't have Christianity. You can't have it without that. Well, the metaphor in the scripture is we are the body of Christ. And we don't buy the Roman Catholic interpretation of that as though the church is the extension of the incarnation. Yet nonetheless, it is a physical meeting of a physical body, a metaphor uh, pointing out uh, relating to Christ's physical body. So therefore, in, in asserting this, we need to understand that what has happened in the country has been, and I think Ardell, didn't you use this language in something you wrote and I just quoted in one of the CCL newsletters? The de-churching of Christianity. That's what we've seen. Basically, we're, we're, we're seeing uh, the church shorn away from Christianity. But I would suggest that when you do that, you no longer can have the Christian faith. It's going to be difficult for us to lay our fingers on specific passages of Scripture to buttress and to support everything that we say here. And the reason for that is that we are dealing here with what I, what I think is properly described in the Westminster Confession and some other confessions as good and necessary inferences. And the fact that we are dealing with good and necessary inferences does not diminish their significance simply because some don't follow that, or some don't see those good and necessary inferences. It takes a measure of maturity in the scriptures and in Christ to recognize good and necessary inferences. So there are going to be things that are going to be said tonight, doubtless, that may fly over the heads of some folks, and I say this for folks who may be watching this uh, as a recording as well. But if there are such things, um, I think some questions would be proper to ask. But it is an important element here with, when we're dealing with ecclesiology 
as with all other doctrines, but especially with the ecclesiology, as we're applying the scriptures to our own situation, we have to recognize that, that we need to be patient with one another as we work out those good and necessary inferences. I just want to make sure that we understand that so that that's at the backdrop of everything that we have to say here. What we mean by good and necessary inference, or as it's called, good and necessary consequence in some of the confessions, it's the idea that scripture is both authoritative and sufficient, but not everything that we do in church has a chapter verse. Like, so for example, is it mandatory for a church to meet at 930 and another church at 1045 and is one sinning or another? No, that it's good and necessary consequence or inference, meaning sanctified together common sense tells us one particular church has to start meeting at a certain time for them to be a church, and they've got to agree on that. And so I don't know if that makes sense to everybody, but a lot of things we're going to talk about is as we read scripture, it, it just comes out. It's the natural outworking of what does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to meet? Yeah, I, I think something to, to remember is when the confessions use that language, what they're saying is that what can be properly deduced as good and necessary consequence is just as authoritative as the explicit word of God. That's evident clearly in things like the uh, aspects of Trinitarianism and so on and the systematic framework of it. So the notion that, well, somehow if the Bible explicitly states something, that is a higher degree of authority than if we infer clearly from several statements in the Bible that that somehow has a lesser or subordinate authority. No, I'm afraid the Bible doesn't teach that in my view, and that's certainly not what the confessions teach. But what we do see often in Scripture is the statement, when you gather, when, as you gather, I think Second yes. Corinthians or First Corinthians is that, is it five times? There's no way to get around it necessitates no. a physical gathering. Is that correct? Yes. And well, and the book of Hebrews makes clear on the obverse side of that, that a mark of a, that to forsake the assembling is a mark of apostasy. The writer is there, he's talking about apostasy, and he points out that a mark of apostasy is a turning away from, from this gathering. So this is not a minor point we're talking about, nor in my view is it an, an inference merely. It's quite clear. Uh, you're right in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, the church must meet can there be a difference about when it meets on Sunday? Sure. But that, that the church meets on the Lord's Day, that's a biblical requirement. How would you also um, talk about, and, and we, we talked a little in our pre-emails um, back and forth about the duties of church members towards one another's. How do the one another's, the non-official like things that happen in worship, where it's really in one sense the pastor, the elders leading, uh, all of us in participation— what about all the non-formal things that happen, the caring for one another, serving one another, the exercising of gifts? What has this retreat and onlineness only done uh, towards member participation with one another in the body of Christ? Well, it, is, it certainly has um, harmed it greatly, because if you think about the uh, those one another's in Scripture, and they are numerous uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, they require, and this kind of goes back to Ardell's point, they require embodied presence with another person uh, very often. Uh, and, and, and for 
frankly, I would argue that all of them um, do so precisely because of who God's made us to be. He's made us to be physical bodies. Uh, we're not disembodied souls. Um, in, in the new heavens and new earth, it's a glorified creation, and, and we're going to have glorified bodies. Um, the body is good. The physical body, the physical material world is created by God, and it's good, and God is rescuing that whole created order from sin. Um, so every aspect of human life, of human culture, is, is relevant to biblical Christianity. Um, one of the things that we're experiencing currently with all of the stress in online worship and online uh, alleged ministry is a view of that worship or ministry that's very Gnostic. It, it's, uh, it's not faithful to scripture. Um, it, it reduces uh, Christianity to ideas that, that can be expressed merely uh, through somebody speaking. Um, it reduces uh, biblical ministry to concepts. But what in fact you have with the gathered people of God, um, and, and you see this in, in the seminal redemptive event of the Old Testament um, through the Exodus, what does God do? What's the, what's the great significant first corporate event of Israel? It's, it's worship at Mount Sinai. Um, so this is what frames the, the biblical storyline is God moving uh, history to this point from creation to the Exodus and, and sort of launches his covenant people with a corporate worship service at Mount Sinai. And if you want to understand the gravity, the nature of Christian worship, well, we'll then read through Exodus 19 and 20 and note um, the terror that God struck into his people to teach them to revere him and, I might add, also to require them to have a personal physical mediator for them between them and God. Yeah, I'd like to just say something really quickly. David's touched on something vital. One reason we have such a low view of the church is because we have a low or diminished view of creation. Yes. Uh, that's a vital point that's often missed. We don't value creation. We don't value the human body. We don't value the physical. We somehow think that, quote, think spiritual things, meaning non-physical. That's not how the Bible uses it, but it's how it's used today. But somehow these spiritual, uh, mental things, these mental constructs, uh, you know, private prayers in our hearts and so on, they are sort of higher than the church meeting and things very uh, physical and visible. But that's anti-creational, and that's not Christian. It's Gnostic. Right. Yep. When you ask about the the one another passages in the in the scriptures, I think of uh, two passages that stand out and come to mind with regard to um, these things. Where Paul speaks in Ephesians five and again in Colossians three, uh, where he essentially says the same kind of thing. Uh, my translation reads, instead be filled with the spirit. Don't be intoxicated with wine in which is excess or debauchery, but instead be filled with the spirit. And that 
that expression itself requires some uh, a, a, some attention, but I'm not going to give it to, to you tonight. But then he goes on and says, singing and making melody or music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks, uh, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, and those two passages are oftentimes, and perhaps most of the time, treated as though Paul were speaking to individuals as though he were addressing the individual life. Uh, but really, he's speaking to the church and to the and to the function of the body in, together. Otherwise, how you how are you going to be singing psalms to songs and psalms and hymns and melodies to one another, um, so that so that there is something about the musical dimensions of worship that um, that musicians certainly can speak to better than I. But it's there's something that I have I have de detected and noticed over throughout the years that there's something more to it than simply standing there and singing. There is a mutual uh, admonition. There's a mutual encouragement. There's a mutual instruction going on, which of course is precisely why hymns ought to be selected carefully. Uh, and um, and intentionally, but unfortunately, in so many churches today, people across the ages are not being are not engaging in the music and in the singing of uh, the songs, and consequently, uh, people are standing, listening, and hearing, and in large measure, many times, what's going on is a performance up front rather than a congregational singing and and the and what what happens then is that people actually become passive and uh, and passivity has no place in the recitation of the confessions in the recitations of prayers in the recitation of hymns there's no place for passivity in in worship we are embodied people, and we need to know and know and learn how to use our voices. I learned how to read music in the church. Yes, I learned how yes. to sing in the church, yeah. and and we as Christians ought to be teaching our children how to read music and how to uh, how to sing different parts. It used to be that the the congregation was essentially a choir. No more unfortunately. We need mm -hmm. to recover that, in my estimation. Yeah. And I think that's a good and necessary inference from the scriptures. Yes. So what are the, you know, we, we maybe going from that into some of our other topics we, we discussed, a couple of passages that uh, we want to, I think, are key ones. Uh, somebody just wrote, uh, thank you, Mike, uh, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I want to hit now on the second commandment is you shall not make yourself a carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the Lord, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of your fathers, uh, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. And if the first commandment tells us not to worship other gods, the second commandment tells us not to worship our God as the pagans worship their gods. Interestingly enough, as I've taught through this at our church, I've preached through it and taught through it in Sunday school, one of the um, kind of the, 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 the visuals I give for people, at least mentally, is if I were going to give you the Ten Commandments and tell you the warning, I will visit the iniquity of um, to, to the children, to the third and fourth generation, and I were to tell you that that fit under one of the commandments, which one would it be before I read to you the Ten Commandments? And we would often think it would be, do not murder, do not commit adultery. Well, it's under, do not improperly worship me. For when you improperly worship me, there are vast consequences. My question then in this is, how is the second commandment? Um, is, is all we're talking about here, because um, it's what's going to be said, oh, that's just your perspective, Ardell, you're just an old conservative who wants things the good old ways. Um, you guys are just sophisticated Reform Presbyterians or Baptists. Why do we, why are, what are the dangers? Is there, does God care how we worship him in the church? Well, the short answer to that is absolutely positively yes. In fact, God visits his judgment on his people, and even those that are not his people that should know better for false or distorted worship. So uh, I think that I can say without fear of contradiction that there could be no worse sin than uh, sin of false worship. If you just read the Old Testament, how God unleashed his judgment upon Israel, uh, and this is also true in the New, by the way, it's very clear, which is why he lays down regulations for worship. Uh, there may be disagreement on the edges about what those entail, and we can get into those, but there's no question that the idea that we have a right to come to God any way we want, and this is an old romantic notion uh, from the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, the sort of we worship from the heart. God looks at the intent of our heart. That was Rousseau's idea. Forget about all the conventions. God looks at the intent of our heart. If the intent of our heart is right, it doesn't matter how we express our worship. Well, he didn't get that from the Bible. Uh, the Bible is very clear uh, that God dictates how he should be worshiped. So uh, the idea that we can worship God in any way we want to is false. And uh, this is a topic that is vital for what's happening today because people have expanded the term worship to include everything that they shape. And, of course, uh, God's very displeased with that. Eric, um, I might add that, first of all, I agree with what Andrew just got through saying, but it's important to understand what... Um, images did or how they functioned within false worship in the old covenant era. Um, ancient pagan worship used images to try to manipulate their deity. They, they tried to, to use, the, the, technically speaking, the image was not so much worship, but the, the image was used to try to manipulate the deity in worship. The connection there was so vital and so organic that 
God could say that to worship falsely was to worship images. Now, secondly, notice that it not only then entails manipulation by the worshiper, thinking that the worshiper is leveraging the deity, but secondly, notice that it is an image. It's something that is tangible and that the worshiper can, can see and manipulate. Converse of that is faithful biblical worship in which God is the one who creates the worshiper, that God speaks his word that is heard, not seen. This is one of the vital points that uh, many, I think, American Christians miss and American churches miss. Biblical Christianity is first and foremost and essentially auditory. That's it right. is God, God speaking and us listening and hearing. As you think about Deuteronomy 6, the, in the passage known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And the word for, in Hebrew for hear is also the same term that's used to be translated keep or obey. So there was a vital union between God speaking and his people hearing physically and obeying spiritually. Hmm. That union is expressed in the reality that God's word through his spirit actually creates not only physical life, but spiritual life. So in other words, the existence of the church and then the vital obedience by the church or by God's covenant people is dependent on God speaking his word. God chose to speak his word to particular men who then were responsible for making that word known to God's people. So as we move forward from the old covenant era to the new covenant era, from the, the prophets and the priests, we then come to the ministers or the pastors, the teachers of, in God's church who are responsible for speaking God's word that by God's spirit both creates spiritual life and then perfects it, sustains God's people in a corporate gathering where, as Ardell has already mentioned, the, the preacher is able to see people, he's able to connect with people physically. Uh, this, this is not a, a minor point. It's vital that we understand that in God's providence, God could have created a world where computers were first and, uh, and, and this sort of stuff was done at the outset. That's not the world God created. The order in which God creates things is vital to our understanding of these things, both biblical and theologically. So all of these things are, are crucial to the essential nature and function of the church. Would you, would one of you gentlemen care to explain, I mean, maybe it would help everybody here, the distinctions between what we would refer to, what has historically been called the regulative principle versus the normative principle? Well, uh, the regulative principle of worship is essentially that we have to have the God tells us how to worship. We can't devise it. In that sense, every Christian 
and affirm re the regulative principle. But what many many holders believe, and uh, it's essentially a, a Presbyterian viewpoint, though some Baptists do hold it, is that we can't do anything specifically in worship unless God has specifically warranted it in the Bible. In principle, I agree with that, but I like your term, the term about normative. That is, the Bible itself must govern everything we do in worship. We must, however, protect against the error, and this is where we would disagree, not just with Roman Catholics, but some of our Lutheran and uh, Anglican friends, of simply sort of inventing cool things for worship all the time. And a lot of this is done, uh, you know, with good intention. But, uh, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if there were incense? You know, wouldn't it be nice if we were smelling good things while we were worshiping and so on? Uh, and yet we find in the Bible that these things are not harmless. We start adding a lot of extra things that the Bible doesn't envision explicitly or implicitly that can lead us away from true worship. Uh, I didn't say by that that we have to have a scripture text for everything we do in worship. Uh, for instance, I believe that it's very helpful for the church to recite the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, for example, in worship. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that uh, we can do that. But it is a good summary of what the Bible teaches. And to corporately express a summary of biblical truth is always a good thing. But that's different from some of these other items that are simply added harmlessly, it is thought, to enhance worship. Uh, that, I think, is, a, from my way of thinking, at least, it's a fair distinction. Vody Bakum, he says this a little tongue-in-cheek, but it illustrates that he says nowadays we've moved from regulative, which is basically you don't do what God, unless God commands it, you don't do it. Normative, unless God forbids it, it's okay. And he calls it the affective principle, that if it feels good, it must be good in worship. How do we see that worked out today in the crisis of ecclesia? Well, I'll mention quickly, I know we probably want to get our devil here and David, but uh, I'll mention quickly that we we live in a time uh, that believes in expressive individualism. Mm -hmm. And a lot of modern, what's called modern worship is simply uh, expressive individualism uh, mm -hmm. as adapted to the church. Um, but uh, biblically, our, our, our public worship, like everything else, must be governed by the word of God. Mm -hmm. And when it's not, when people are just simply making up things in worship, that's what becomes uh, exceedingly dangerous. And uh, I'm a Protestant, and I'm a proud Protestant, and that's one reason I am a Protestant, because I don't believe that uh, worship should be governed by anything except by the Word of God, or, of course, what can be uh, deduced properly from the Word of God. There is not a church that exists anywhere that has not established its own liturgy. Every church has a liturgy. But that does not mean that every liturgy is equal or worthy of following. There are good reasons why there, there has been a history of liturgy, liturgy development and, uh, and that we leave that and then form and forge our own liturgy um, is not is not a good thing. Um, we, it seems to me that we need to reconsider what we are doing in the church. And I think that this is the perfect time for churches to 
reboot. Um, six months for many churches, some churches not going to meet until uh, the new year. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful time for churches to take inventory of themselves and rethink what we are doing, um, particularly with regard to our liturgy. Is our liturgy in our church um, acceptable to the Lord God? Um, and that's a question that's within the framework of the normative and regulative and the affective. And I'm afraid that the affective, which Vody Bauckham cleverly has coined, uh, does in fact uh, tend to dominate um, Protestant and evangelical churches. One advantage to, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. A quick thing, uh, one advantage of having historically rooted and moderate, in my view, biblical liturgies is you don't have to reinvent them every five years. The problem with modern evangelicals is when the latest sort of trend comes along, it's necessary to reinvent the liturgy, and they have to have the, the worship leader go out and go to all sorts of classes. Well, what are people craving now? Well, the important thing is not what people are craving. People have done this for Protestants, let's say, for 200 years. Probably safe to say it's not all bad. Probably safe to say we don't need to reinvent this every five years. That's a, that's a good justification for sticking with historic biblical liturgies. Um, there's a question that just came to me from the chat, um, a question from, from Mitch, uh, and, and I would like maybe one of you to transition this a little bit. Could we make an argument? Is there a similarity in Jesus' day when he would speak and preach and the people would ask for signs and wonders and to be fed? Um, is that similar to today's culture in the church? Meaning we are not happy yes, with the yes. word, we want more than to hear? Yes, 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 exactly. This is exactly correct. Um, stop and think about what the signs and wonders were and in terms of how it appealed to people. And here we're getting to the whole, again, the whole nature uh, of worship. Uh, what is most important in biblical worship? That I, the worshiper, am pleased or that God is pleased? The, that my feelings have been affected in a particular way or, or that God is affected in a particular way? Um, the, the signs and wonders that people craved, they, they craved precisely because it, it satisfied their expectations and, and it, it met their own requirement. Um, that's not the basis upon which God relates to us. Um, he's the one that, that gets to dictate everything. Um, now going back to the whole issue of the images and what, what, it, what does it amount to? It amounts to manipulation. Well, what is it that, that we think we're, we're doing in biblical worship when, when we're manipulating? What, what, is it, what is it that we do to try to manipulate? Well, we try to manipulate people's emotions. We, 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 we address the internal, but we're, but we're not concerned about primarily the external and the objective. Um, and we're, we're too wrapped up in our own internal life and what's going on with us and how we feel about things. And we're evaluating worship on that basis. 
but that is not how God evaluates worship. And that's, that's also not how God evaluates our relationship to him. Uh, fundamentally, my relationship to God is, is not um, evaluated or based on how I feel, but on what God says is true about who I am and who he is. Um, so, you know, one of the most perceptive men that has written on these things uh, over the last 25 years has been David Wells. And, and one of the things that Wells concentrates on, um, especially when you get to his book, God in the Wasteland, is this whole point that everything has that, that, uh, that evangelical Americans think about their relationship to the Lord, they've, they've collapsed it into the internal. And of course, this is part of what has taken place in our society and culture as a whole. Um, so it's, it's this whole issue of, of manipulating based on emotions and, and trying to have our relationship to God on our terms that, that has to stop. And that is very much seen in the people pandering after Jesus to do these things so that they could be convinced that he was who he claimed to be. They wanted their relationship with Jesus on their terms. Uh, th th I want to add quickly, that's right. The theologian Scott Hafman made a very interesting point one time, and I hope it'll cause us to reorient our thinking. The Bible is not fundamentally about God's revelation in our heart. It's about fundamentally about his revelation in history, human history yes. of his people. Yes. Amen. Now, there's no doubt God does reveal himself to our hearts. The Bible is clear about that. But if you read through the Bible, if God's concern was principally to reveal himself to human hearts, well, he wasted a lot of ink and space. <laughs> because most of the Bible is about God what's doing with his people in human history, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Yes. So it's as he deals with his people in human history that he does reveal himself to the human heart. But that's not principally what the Bible's all about at all. Understanding that fact will help us to read the Bible differently and also act in church differently. Yes. Amen. If I may add one, uh, one other dimension to, um, to these matters that both um, Andrew and David have spoken to, if I can just put it slightly different uh, terms to um, put some feet to it a little bit. The... The essence of what the Jews in Jesus's day were doing in demanding signs and wonders was they were treating these things as ends in themselves. Yes. Yes. And and treating them as ends in themselves is the beginning of idolatry. And and we see that when Paul speaks of those who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Mm -hmm. And we see lots and lots of churches that have the form of godliness, but are denying the power thereof. And that is uh, a form of idolatry. It is, it is, as David has suggested, seeking to manipulate God to, to fit within our framework mm -hmm. rather than submitting to him and uh, and doing what pleases him, so that we can we can do the same thing with um, with the scriptures. Jesus, in fact, speaks to that in the Gospel of John, 
um, when he says, you search the scriptures thinking that you will find eternal life in them. And the point that Jesus is making is, look, the scriptures testify concerning me. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find eternal life in the scriptures. You're going to find eternal life in that which to, to which they testify. So treating the Bible as an end in itself is idolatry. Some call it bibliolatry. Uh, but, it, but these things are very important for, uh, for the life of the church so that we can continue and sustain the life of the church for, for, a, for generations without falling into formalism. Formalism is deadly. Traditionalism is deadly. Tradition isn't bad. Tradition is necessary. But we can become traditionalists and treat the tradition as an end in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I've often used the illustration that I came upon several years ago about a woman who um, was having her family over for Christmas dinner, or I guess it was Easter dinner, and um, and her mother was helping her and uh, in the kitchen, and she cut her ham in half and put it in the oven. And her mother asked, "Why did you cut the ham in half?" And she said, "You always did that." And her mother said, well, yes, I did, but that's the only, the only reason I did is I didn't have a pot large enough to hold a whole ham. In other words, in other words, re- the kinds of practices that we embrace and, and, and engage in our churches mm-hmm. need constantly to be uh, explained as to why mm-hmm. we're doing them mm-hmm. and rather than allow people to, uh, to just that rather than assume that people understand these things, we need constantly to instruct. That's the very nature of a family, is it not? Mm-hmm. As children, mm-hmm. as children rise up, they need constant instruction, and adults need constant instruction as well. This is what the prophets were doing uh, mm-hmm. with Israel, reminding them of what they're doing and why they're doing it. It's not end in itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eric, if I might add, just to piggyback what um, Ardell has said here, if, if we think about the, the history of God's revelation, and, and it is a history, and, and Andrew's absolutely correct to stress the historical events of biblical Christianity, uh, that, that Christianity is all about events taking place in history. It's, a, it's about the objective, empirical, verifiable events. In God's providence, he determined that his word would first be heard. First heard. Second, that it would be written. Then it would come in the flesh. That progression is important. And it's it's vital then, therefore, for us to see that the, the purpose of the written text of Scripture is for its embodiment in history. That, of course, is encapsulated in the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. The Word became flesh. The church is the body of Christ. So this enfleshment, this embodiedness that we're talking about, 
that's vital to the church being the church is is seen in redemptive history and it's also one reason it, it's also getting to this whole point that Ardell mentioned in terms of you can have the written text of scripture but but if it's not pointing you to and causing you to engage vitally with the personal the person of Jesus Christ and the personal presence of his spirit in the gathered community of God's people well, well then there's something seriously deficient in your understanding of, of Christianity. Amen. We, a couple of, uh, I'm going to segue from David. Thank you for that. Those last comments. I'm going to segue from what he just said. A um, couple things. David mentioned David Wells, um, God in the Wasteland. I uh, would, would recommend to any of you, if you want to understand kind of the psychology of why as Americans, we, desire the, the the signs and wonders uh david wells's books are just terrific god in the wasteland the courage to be protestant no place for truth uh losing our other. virtue yeah what yeah, is that losing losing What's our that? Virtue and then above all earthly powers yes yes and if you look on monergism.com Banner of Truth did a summary booklet called The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church. And if you want just a flavor for David Wells, kind of a very cliff note summary. Um, it's about a five-page booklet. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon from Banner of Truth, but it, it's like a tract. But Monergism has it for free, um, The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church. So that'll help you to understand a little bit of not only why does this matter, but what does it do to the church that, that, that doesn't think biblically? How does worship, does improper worship, why do we desire improper worship in our American context? And how does that actually uh, make us worse off, not better off, if that makes sense? Um, here's another question somebody had earlier about the idea of, um, um, is it one of the reasons that folks convert to say Eastern Orthodoxy or Ro Romanism, Roman Catholicism? It's because of their worship. Somebody want to, Try to tackle that one for a couple minutes. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll tackle that one. I've known a number of folks like that. Uh, there's not one reason. Uh, <clears throat> I will uh, freely acknowledge that a number that have been evangelical uh, have seen their churches as historically impoverished and their worship as being of a low quality, and thought they could uh, get a more robust. A visualized form of worship in those two. I, while I disagree with the move, I understand that. But I would say, for the most part, that a lot of what is driving this move to Eastern Orthodoxy and Romanism among younger people, particularly among previous uh, younger evangelicals in various uh, reared in evangelical churches and families, as this is the strong emphasis on the, the visual in our culture. Uh, let's face it, biblical worship that should occur in a church on every Sunday morning cannot compete with the visualization that you can see on TV every night. And if your criterion of biblical worship is the kind of visualization and the spectacle that can be produced on the screen, then there's no way that biblical, biblically evangelical or Protestant worship will suffice. A closer thing to do that would be uh, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, Byzantine Orthodoxy, or Roman Catholicism. 
uh, David earlier touched on this, and it's vital. One of the great differences we have with Eastern Orthodoxy in Rome is that their worship tends to be visually oriented. Ours is verbally oriented. Not that there aren't visual aspects. Baptism, we believe, is a sacrament of ordinance. The Lord's table is. Um, but there's not this sense of a, the necessity of a robustly visualized experience and uh, five-sense experience in worship that even many Anglicans and Lutherans seem to buy into. Uh, so my view is, if you're going to be Protestant, be a Protestant. And that means be tied to the Word of God. But I think that is in an age that is just enslaved to um, the aesthetic. Our age is enslaved to the aesthetic. To people like that, Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism would be very appealing. I want to I want to take what Dr. Sandlin just said, um, and I want to uh, move us a little bit to the conversation of form versus function. And a question just came up um, that, is there any place for stained glass or pipe organs in the worship of church and such funds could be redirected to frontier missions or local needs of the community? So Dr. Kennedy, would you address a little bit, does architecture matter in our churches? Does it matter how we dress when we come to worship or is it a come as you are, um, non-judgmental, Jesus doesn't care type of attitude? What, what is the, why historically have people wrestled with those things and, and has that mattered? That's a huge question. And I can take the rest of the hour and more to address that, but I will, uh, I, I will resist. Um, we know there, that Ardell has a whole sermon that he can go <laughs> off the top of his head on this. That's why we're asking it. Go ahead, Dr. Kennedy. We won't interrupt. There is a there is a truism that uh, that every artist recognizes, whether it whether one is a poet, an architecture, uh, an architect, a um, a builder, uh, a clothier, whatever. Everybody recognizes that there is a truism, and it's called, and, and, it, and it basically has these words, form follows function. So you, you see this very vividly in, in the Psalms. There are different kinds of Psalms in, in, the, in the Psalter that we know of as 150 Psalms. There are different kinds of Psalms. They don't all have the same function. They all have the same function ultimately, that is worship of the Lord God, but they don't all get to that same objective in the same way. And so a careful study of the Psalms recognizes that there is a form for a lament psalm. There's a form for a thanksgiving psalm. There is a form for a song of worship, a hymn, what we might call a hymn form follows function. You do not wear a tuxedo to the beach. You don't wear a speedo to a wedding. And when you see these things, you cringe, and rightly so. It's embedded in nature. God created his, his universe this way, <clears throat> so, that, so that it is, it is an in, inflexible reality that God has established that form follows function. And so 
form follows function also means then that our, our, our architecture does matter. We construct homes in the United States with pitched roofs. You don't find pitched roofs in uh, deserts <laughs> for the most part. You and you don't find pitched roofs in Israel. Form follows the function, so that you in 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 Israel architecture is is done in such a way that it can keep can keep the inside of a building cool, relatively cool. And there's no need for a pitched roof because you don't have lots of rain. You can handle the rain um, and the rainy season in other ways. But the, the same thing is true in church. And if you've ever visited a cathedral in Europe, let's say, you immediately have an experience that is palpable and you know it and if you suppress it and deny it you're simply denying reality there is an experience you have and why what what is a what does a cathedral do a cathedral is structured in such a way that it pulls us upward um, but what are what are most of our churches contemporary churches being being built like well, we're finding churches that are in malls and um, and um, warehouses, and the and the sanctuaries look altogether like um, theaters, and they're designed like theaters, and they're designed like performance halls rather than churches. And so, does that affect our worship? Of course, it does. And we would be foolish if we denied that it does. It affects our worship. And when you go into a church that resembles, that is much more like a miniature cathedral, does it affect your worship? Of course it does. Does it affect the preaching of the word? Yes. It affects everything. It affects your, it affects the music and every facet. Um, we have on our Northwestern College, Northwestern uh, campus, uh, we have a chapel uh, built in a, uh, built in a um, Roman Catholic um, uh, uh, Gothic type style. Um, and uh, I think it's Gothic. Um, and the experience of singing and hearing the word preached in that, in that room is very different from what it is when we go to the large sprawling uh, multi-purpose room that is designed for performance. The same thing is true with clothing. Uh, does what we wear to church affect our worship? Yes, it does. If we come casually, we're going to approach God casually. If we come in a more in a more dressed-up form, we're going. We're, our approach to the Lord God is going to be uh, different. Can these things be abused? Indeed they can. People can dress to be seen. And do people dress to be seen? Yeah, they do. But there is something to be said about dressing appropriately for the hearing of the word and for the worship of the Lord God so that what we 
what we would ordinarily wear on other days is not worn. Um, and yes, I acknowledge that this is deriving things from the scriptures that have to do with the inferences or the consequences, but they're necessary and good ones. Um, and Paul has things to say like about these things. Doesn't he say, does not nature teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair? Does not, does not nature teach you that it is a shame for a woman to have her head shorn? Now, in other words, when Paul speaks like that, we need to draw the inferences not only with regard to the, the hair, but with regard to the rest of the body. And, and Paul speaks of these things in Romans 1. Nature teaches us. Nature teaches us that there is a proper relationship between a man and a woman, and any, and any relationship like that resembles that marital relationship between a male and a male, or a female and a female, is a bastardization of God's design. Nature teaches us, and we need to, uh, we need to get back to instructing the Lord's people with regard to these matters, and especially in days like this, when when these when marital relationships are so thoroughly confused but music every piece of music is designed and written for a purpose and we have to ask what is the purpose for this piece of music and as much as i like beach boys music and as much as i love the carpenters and I'm dating myself, I realize, but- Yes, you are. Go ahead. Excuse me, if you will. <laughs> as much as I love their music, I don't bring that into the church. Why? Because it's written for a, it's written for a purpose, and it's not written for the worship of the Lord God. Well, when our worship begins to imitate that, word, that music, when our music begins to imitate that music, and it sounds like, love songs to Jesus as, he, as if he's our big boyfriend, there's something, something very seriously wrong going on in the church. So form follows function in all of these matters. Does that uh, get to the, uh, the nub of the issue, Eric? Yes, it does. So why, why would you then say, let's just say one I presume some people in this group are going to have influence over their worship at church. Maybe they're in a small church or maybe they're on the leadership team. What would you say to somebody that came to you and said, Hey, look at the lyrics of this song. It just came out on Christian radio or Christian YouTube, whatever the new way to put out new songs is. Uh, the lyrics are sound. It talks about the gospel. Um, what kind of, what kind of criteria would you have for them before they put it, um, into congregational worship? What is necessary? What is the distinction between a Christian radio hit that may be worshipful and a song that is necessarily good for the church to worship together? It yes, must Eric, be. we should not let K-Love shape uh, <laughs> public worship. And the notion that uh, sound lyrics alone are the criterion for what's appropriate in public worship is, is flawed. The Bible says that we worship 
the Lord of the beauty of holiness. And therefore, music must be respectful and dignified. Uh, and thus, the notion that, well, you know, so-and-so just had a hit and it talked about the fact that Jesus died and rose again. And therefore, obviously, that's true. The kerygma is preached and taught. And therefore, forget about the music. People will like it. I think that's a fundamental fallacy. Yes, and we would say because most of the stuff on the radio, maybe it's maybe it's fine and good. Let's just make that statement. But it's performance by nature, not participatory by nature. Right. Why do songs stay in the hymnal for a hundred years? Well, yeah. obviously, certainly it's lyrical, but also it's singable, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. I see Ardell shaking his head. Yes, it's, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. God, God's people again, and so this goes back to the whole corporate worship issue. God's people are to worship corporately. All of God's people are to to worship. Uh, all of God's people are to sing. God, God didn't instruct the, the music team to sing. Yes. He instructed all of God's people to sing. Um, Andrew made a comment earlier uh, in our time where he made reference to that the old concept was that the congregation was the church choir. That is correct. And that's why in, in church architecture, a place for a quote-unquote choir distinct from the congregation is a very new development in the history of church architecture. It's the church corporate that sings. And so when the music is so loud that I can't hear myself sing when I'm out there in the congregation, then what you have is worship that is not pleasing to God. Um, what you have, and, and others have pointed this out, is in many American evangelical churches, you have the equivalent of what was taking place in medieval Catholicism, where you had the priest performing all of the liturgical acts of worship, but they were doing it, doing it in Latin, a language that the common people didn't understand. So the common people were sitting, standing there watching them engage in worship, and that's a fundamentally what's going on in a lot of contemporary American evangelical churches where you got a music team that's playing music so loud that only they can hear, you know, they, they're the only ones that are singing. The, the, the rest of the people are, are, can't hear themselves sing. And, and then going back to the whole music form, when you have music that is not easily sung by a corporate body, well, then it makes it even more likely that the people up front leading the music are going to be the ones basically ahead of everyone else and, and doing the singing. The ancient hymns have stood the test of time precisely because they are theologically, doctrinally accurate according to scripture, and they are singable. They're easy to learn. And Ardell's comment about learning how to read music in the church absolutely and and that's again that goes back again to some of the whole issue of the objective and the empirical notes on a page they're there you see them um, learn them uh, it'll make you a better worshiper when you can sing the hymn and these hymns are not difficult to learn Eric could I that's all good could I just jump in and mention a, a really chief philosophical difference here this is vital to understand. Most Christians today go to church looking to get something from God. 
They don't understand that worship is also about giving something to God. Mm. That's a vital point to understand, and therefore we have to go the way God tells us, because to yes. worship, we are making a contribution. When we worship before God, we are giving something to God as a living sacrifice. So we don't come simply to watch other people do our religion for us. Right. If we're not giving something back to God, we're not truly worshiping. And and I might just add to that, that the link then, this, this there's that union between God giving and us giving back. God calls us to worship him by his word and spirit. He, he creates his people that worship him. He enables them to engage in that worship by his word and spirit. And so biblically faithful worship is fundamentally a dialogue between God and his people. God speaks, his people respond. And then God speaks again and his people respond. And there's this back and forth. That's what a biblically faithful worship service is, is that dialogue of that going back and forth. Andrew Sandlin is absolutely correct. Right. I may add, uh, this dimension to it as well and bill may actually want to speak because bill is uh, a musician i believe um but we have to recognize and we have to recognize this in the church and if ministers uh, of the gospel do not understand these things we the minister needs to get people who are understanding of the of these matters I think that seminaries in large measure have failed ministers with regard to these dimensions about form and function, um, as well as uh, Gnosticism and non-Gnosticism, non uh, because these things all are kind of merged together. But lyrics and musical scores need to be married carefully. They can't, they're not just thrown together haphazardly. Let me illustrate that. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were attending a church where two, two very familiar songs were sung, being sung. One was the Lord, um, the Lord is My Shepherd, a, a version of the 23rd Psalm. And there are so many good ones. And then the, and then the other was um, William Cooper's song, uh, God Works on, in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. Both of those songs were sung to some kind of contemporary, recently written musical score, and they weren't married together well at all. And as a matter of fact, it rendered these song, it rendered these uh, hymns unsingable. Yes. And when when we do that, we are snubbing the congregation, so that I can't participate in worship so that it ends up being a mere performance by those who can do it, and they were the ones who were on, on the stage, or, and which, of course, used to be called the, uh, the dais or the platform, but now it's called the, it's the stage. And so the marriage of music, musical scores and lyrics is a very, very important aspect, and, and when we just throw these things together, we are, we're ruining songs in a very significant way. Bill, do you want to add anything to that? Well, really not a lot, Ardell. I think what you said is great. I, I've really appreciated the form function piece. And as you've said, the physical and spiritual thing, I, you know, that whole thing of combining uh, so we don't form this uh, platonic dualism, you know, and, and separating those things out as, as um, 
uh, Wells points out well in his books. And I, I've just uh, started reading uh, Veith's book, Post-Christian, which I think is a really nice follow-on to his postmodern times. And he talks about this whole thing of the physical and the spiritual and how that's led to materialism on one side and postmodernism and its aberrance after that um, when, when you separate those two. So I think those two, the physical spiritual piece that Dr. Sandlin mentioned, and then your form versus function, particularly in the musical aesthetic and, and how that comes together is so critical. Yeah. We're going to close up fairly quickly uh, here. I maybe would add one thing to that last um, thread that if you, I think one of the most absolutely avoidable conflicts in the church is worship wars because we pick songs that are unsingable. And when we do that, we ask for critique. And then we wonder why people are critiquing the performance. Well, I, David Smith was saying earlier that sometimes at their church, they do acapella, which same at Lifespring. If our piano player isn't there, we sing them acapella. We pick low verse songs that men can sing. We pick the easy ones to sing. And nobody ever complains because it's participatory. Um, so I maybe that would just be a little advice. If you're in a chance to make, um, it's, it's actually doing biblical worship is a lot simpler and easier and more effective in the long run than all these new forms. Um, Dad, I might add, Eric, we, uh, we sing a cappella every Sunday, all of our hymns. We don't, not by design, we just don't have any musicians. Um, and you're right, biblical worship is very simple. This is one of the reasons why it's offensive to, to us, is that it, uh, because of its simplicity. I might also add, just a little tweak of something I heard earlier. Um, it's important that we emphasize that we confess the creeds. We do not merely recite them. Mm. Reciting simply we do from memory. But mm. when we confess the creeds, we are willfully, joyfully saying, I believe this. So that term, that, that those terminological difference there is, is uh, important to understand. Uh, Eric, can I throw in real quick? Here's what sure. I I tell worship uh, worship team leaders, so on. Uh, pick songs that the congregation could sing if you weren't there. Come, let us go up to Zion. Let us draw near to the Lord our God. Come, let us go up to Zion. 